The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, let's go to God's Word now as we turn to Matthew chapter 6. And we've been teaching, as you know, if you've been with us through the Gospel of Matthew, actually uh, a series that we started during Advent in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and then continued in the new year. And we, uh, we're really in the midst of now the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in the, just uh, some great, uh, great passages as we work through, and God's teaching us so much. I'm going to be reading in chapter 6, starting in verse 1 to 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret rule will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Yes, I am tempted to make this a 12-week series, just in what we read. And we're going to do it in one week, and there's some great things here. You know, I, I grew up, and some of you know, I grew up in the Midwestern United States and born and raised in Ohio and crossed the Ohio River into northern Kentucky, kind of the second half of my teen years. And um, I learned to drive a boat during those years well before I learned to drive a car. One of the first things that we did as a family when we crossed the river was we got a family boat. We got a family boat, and we, we, uh, we rehabbed it. We did a lot of work on it. It took several weeks to to clean it up, to do a lot of mechanical work, and got it ready for, for the river, for the Ohio River. We went tubing on the Ohio River. We got, um, you know, dysteria on the Ohio River. We, uh, <laughs> it's really dirty. Uh, we take our boat onto the river, and, and, and it would be a lane. You know, we'd have a lane, a driving lane that would be a mile wide. And, and, and we, would, we would wave as boats would pass by. And it's really fun to boat. It's really fun to drive a boat. If you have been on a boat or rented a boat at times. It's, it's a lot of fun, but even, but even so much, so maybe even more than fun, it's actually quite easy, quite easy to drive a boat. 
Um, my young children can even do it. We even took our five and three-year-old out into the Newport uh, Beach Marina and take, got a boat and, and drove around and our kids would take turns uh, driving the boat and it was really fun. Uh, this year we saw a seal and a dolphin, um, a pink dolphin according to my daughter. But boating, as fun as it is and as easy as it is, it's also really, it's really dangerous. And the hardest part of boating is docking. The hardest part is actually coming into the dock and parking it without ruining, without ruining the whole of the boat. Doesn't matter who's driving, when it's time to dock, you, you find the most skilled and ready person to take the wheel. So whoever's having fun and driving the boat on the water, when it's time to come in, you, you get serious and you turn the music down and you get quiet and you get still and you get the most skilled person to take the wheel because it takes skill, it takes a lot of practice to dock a boat. It's really easy to take off from the dock, it's really difficult to actually come in. And there's a time when you can afford to be more careless and, and more distracted. You can be out on the open water and you have the music up and you're, you're looking around and you're taking in the scenery and you're even taking pictures and something that you would, you would never do in a car but something that's easy to do on a boat. You're enjoying the breeze in your face and you come into a dock, you're alert and you're focused, it's quiet and you're ready. You slow down. No one goes into the dock full throttle. No one comes into the garage with their car at 25 miles an hour. You slow down. You pay attention to what you're doing. Well, Jesus transitions here now in the Sermon on the Mount as he is preaching to the crowds. And he transitions uh, to the crowds that are gathered. He just got done talking a lot about personal ethics and principles of the Christian life, like things like lust and anger and integrity. These are things that we must guard our heart uh, for and against in our lives. And then he says a word that really does slow down. He kind of takes the wheel and kind of gets quiet and he says, beware. He uses the word beware or literally he says, come close and listen. Stop what you're doing. You know, this is the point of the sermon where there, if there was murmuring or muttering or conversation, side conversations going on in the crowd, it would be the point of the sermon where everyone would lean in and get quiet. And it's, this word is even used in, in boating, and it was even used in the ancient Near East, this word beware, or, or literally come close to the dock and come in slowly. This word for boaters as they were approaching, they would know this word, and they would slow down and get intentional and get very sober-minded. Jesus is saying, pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is for a skilled person. It takes practice. It's very important. Do not take this carelessly. Do not take the words I'm about to say and just think about them uh, in ways that are careless, but slow down. Stop looking at your phones. Stop the conversations you're happening. Put down your drink and pay attention. Jesus would have his disciples realize that it's not only in the day-to-day -day activities uh, of their lives where we're tempted to and need to be vigilant, but we also need to be careful in areas of our lives where we probably feel most safe. And what is that area? Jesus is talking about the place where we usually feel very safe in our lives is when we're doing spiritual things. When we're doing spiritual worship. When we are engaging in, in uh, righteous devotion and practice within our spiritual lives. I think that Jesus would have us believe that there's a certain kind of evil that comes from Christians doing Christian things with the wrong motives and towards the wrong end. What are, what are some of those Christian things? Well, prayer and acts of compassion and fasting. These are just some that Jesus lists. He's really talking about when we worship God. 
When we worship God, it's usually there are times where we feel safe, that our heart can be open and, and, and unguarded. And it's those times Jesus says, this is maybe where you're most vulnerable to sin. And this is a striking new way to look at our lives and a striking new way to, to look at the lives of, of those who are gathered around him about, about religious service. You see, it's so easy uh, to say in a worship service as we're leaving, as we're concluding our time, you may be uh, encouraged by the sermon. You're saying, okay, I'm going to go back out into the world. I'm going to be armed with this. I, I'm now, the, the sermon, the preaching, the music has now encouraged me and filled me back up to go out into the world. That worship service was great. I'm pumped about going into the world and into my job to be faithful. And you may say, God, help me. Let me be on my guard. Guard my eyes. Because there are a lot of girls out there wearing very little. Guard my heart against bitterness because there's a lot of people out there with whom I will disagree today. Guard my mind and my tongue to speak truthfully and loving to others. And these are the topics that Jesus has talked about just in the last few weeks we've covered. Lust and integrity and bitterness. And these are really great reasonable applications when you leave a worship service to say, God, help me to be faithful in my life as I go from here. But how many of you have prepared yourself in such that way like that this morning before coming to worship? None. I mean, Drew probably is the only, he, I know, and I know he does. I actually know he does that as he prepares his heart to worship and to lead us in worship. But no one else does that. <laughs> you woke up this morning and you got the kids ready or maybe you just made some breakfast and you put on your clothes. How many of you stopped and got quiet and said, God, Guard my heart, I'm about to go worship you. Because you feel safe. Because worship is a place where you cannot fail. It is where you're safe. Where this is like this, it's a sanctuary. It is, there is a safety here. No bad can happen when we are worshiping God. Why would you need to prepare yourself for worship? Where's the danger in worship? Where's the danger in drawing near to God? Our worship is a safe place. It's, it's like home base. You see, it's when we're playing tag in the backyard with my kids, and there's, a, there's home base, right? When, so when you're standing on home base, you, you can't be touched. You're safe. Well, church is home base, right? Whatever happens when you're with God, you can't sin. You're not vulnerable. If you've ever been on a cruise ship, it, you know that it takes like five minutes to take off from the dock, and you know it takes like two hours actually to come back into dock. If you've been on a cruise I sound like a real snob right now, you know, like the boats and the cruise ships. Well, it's like one time. And, uh, and so if you're gone on a cruise ship, you, you're like, okay, we're about to pull into dock, into port. And you, you stand there in the marina for like two hours, and you're just creeping in sideways. It takes forever to come in. And then you're finally on land even so much longer after you started. We're most vulnerable when we're drawing near. The danger is this, and I'll give you the principle that Jesus is talking about, and then we'll look at uh, these three areas more closely that he actually addresses. But what is the, the principle here is in, in verse 1. The principle is in just this one verse, and then he unpacks it. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. What is the danger in practicing our righteousness? The danger is, is, is attempting to live our lives in accordance with God's word out of the motive to receive applause from others rather than to give applause to God. 
The danger is that when we are engaging in good things and good acts of worship and righteousness and piety in our life is that we're doing it for the wrong reasons. So that others would praise us, so that others would applaud us, so others may look at us and say, what a good person. They really have their act together. What, what religious activity uh, that you're good at would you consider to be your most personal favorite? I mean, that's an odd question, isn't it? That's, that's an odd question. Maybe no one's asked you that. What spiritual activity do you think you're best at and that you like participating in the most? Think about it. What's your favorite thing to do for God? That could include prayer or fasting or giving your financial gifts or reading your Bible or regular gathering for worship or sharing your faith in evangelism. You like it when someone says, you're at church every week. Yes, I am. Wow, you really know your Bible well. I read it all the time. Let me show you my, my three by five cards where I write down scripture for memory verses. Now imagine that no one knew you participated in that thing. Would it still be your favorite? No one knows. No one knows that you do this well, that you do it often. Would you still do it? Would you still be as excited about it? And would it still be your favorite thing to do for God? If no one knew that you gave money to the church, if it wasn't tax deductible, which someday it may not be, would you still give? Would you give even more? If no one knew how good you were at citing Scripture from memory, would you still spend time memorizing Scripture? If no one knew, if you were alone, would you still lift your hands and your voice in worship when your favorite song came on in the car? If you weren't preparing for a life group or a Bible study or a, or a, or a lesson, would you still study God's Word as intentionally as you did? as if you were going to teach it. If you didn't have an Instagram account, would you still feed the homeless? That's a joke. If you didn't have an Instagram account, would you still do anything good? Would you clean up your neighborhood school? Would you build that home in Mexico if you couldn't tell people about it afterwards? If you did something and you didn't take a picture to share, would you feel as if you wasted a good deed? Well, now no one's going to know about it. What a shame. You see, personal publicity and self-promotion are never to be the motivation of a Christian. Pointing to yourself and your good and your glory is not the motivation of a Christian. Do not be controlled by what other people think of you. This is what Jesus is saying. Do not be controlled by what they think of you. Rather, be controlled of what God thinks of you. And this is a sneaky temptation, isn't it? It's something that kind of creeps in. We, we don't think that there's a danger here in worship. We don't think there's a danger in doing good for God. And so it's, it's, it sneaks in. It manifests itself in, in ways of peer pressure and low self-esteem and, and people-pleasing. It comes in, in in such subtle ways. But its, its result is ultimately that we have ruined genuine worship when we do it for others and not for God. So Jesus desires to bring about new desires in his people and his followers and his disciples where we are able to engage in genuine acts of righteousness motivated by an ultimate desire to bring praise and honor and glory to God regardless of what others think. Regardless of what others think. He desires to change our desires so that we would pursue righteousness 
for his applause and not ours. What a time to hear something like this. While the world is clamoring for attention, while the world is clamoring for praise, while the world is clamoring for fame, God's people ought to be concerned with thinking highly of God rather than people thinking highly of us. When everyone is thinking about going viral, when people want to be noticed, when our jobs and our reputation hinge on the praise of others, what a time to hear from Jesus, don't do good for the praise of man, but do it in secret, even if no one knows. When it comes to religious activity, Jesus means to change our desires so that we're motivated by a desire to please God, not by a desire to please others around us. And this is a chief difference between a, a man-centered approach to worship and a God-centered approach. What is our motivation and what do we hope to get out of it? If our desires and our motivations are not changed to be directed to please God rather than man, Jesus says we will not receive reward from God. This is the main principle. Let's turn to the, now the, the main specifics. See, Jesus lists three activities. He lists three for us. These were the, the, the three pillars of Jewish piety, uh, fasting, praying, and engaging in acts of benevolence or compassion or, or almsgiving, financial gifts. And Jesus structures each of these activities with the, with the same basic theme, the basic flow. And it's all the same for all three, if you notice that. He talks about the hypocrite, and he says, don't be like the hypocrite. And then he talks about the reward of the hypocrite. And then he talks about, now this is what I want you to do as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. Here now is an alternate behavior, an alternative behavior for God's people. This is how you should act. And so we'll look at those three. Let's follow that same structure. And, and that's really, the 2 through 18 covers all that, and verse 1 is the principle. First, who are the hypocrites that Jesus is talking about? And what do they do? In each of these practices, Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrite. Do not be like the hypocrite. Hypocrites were, were literally, the, the word hypocrite means actor. Maybe you're familiar with that explanation or translation. They're the people who would put on masks that would pretend to be somebody who they're not. They're playing a role, and, and the, the world is their stage. And they play out their good deeds for the applause of the audience. Their hearts are pompous and evil. And even more, they like, it. they like what happens when they put on a performance and others clap for them. It fuels them. It makes them want to go out there and do it again. It makes them want to be a better actor, to be more proficient in their skill of pretending to be someone that they are not. They're merely appearing to be holy. They're not really holy. They merely appear to be righteous. They're really pretending to be somebody they're not. And when they give to charity, they give and they, they sound a trumpet so to speak. They enjoy letting other people know how, how selfless and sacrificial they are. But it's just to show they love receiving the praise. It's most likely a, a metaphorical uh, caricature. I don't think, scholars don't think that they actually went around with a trumpet, but it's a metaphorical caricature to mean simply to toot your own horn. And we know what that means. This is why I don't tip at Coldstone. Because every time you tip, what do they do? They ring a bell. <laughs> They're literally like contradicting God's word. So that's why I don't tip. That's the reason. That's why I don't tip. Um, it's tooting their own horn and trumpeting 
Uh, and it doesn't have to be loud, does it? You know, tooting your own horn doesn't have to be loud. It can be in subtle, small ways. It, it, but what it does, it just has to draw attention to yourself of the gift that you have given. Look at what I have done. And people saying, wow, what a generous person. Our kids love to play dress up. If you have children, maybe yours did or do <laughs> as well. We love to play dress up. And, and whether it's a Ninja Turtle or Spider-Man or Princess Elsa, uh, they, we, we just love We love it. Um, and my daughter, Kate, will come in as Princess Elsa, and she'll be dressed up in Princess Elsa. And I have a lot of fun with her, and I'll say something like this. I'll say, oh, hi, Princess Elsa. Excuse me, can you tell me where my daughter, Kate, went? You should see the look in her eyes. She's like, oh, my goodness. My dad thinks I'm Princess Elsa. <laughs> just, keep just keep acting. Just keep up the act. This is going to be great. And we do that for a while, and then she may be like, she's like, no, Daddy, it's me, it's Kate. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I didn't even recognize you. And she just thinks it's great. It's amazing. My son, who's five now, will kind of take me aside, and he'll, he'll be a little concerned. be like, Dad, Dad, you know that was Kate, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, son, just play along with it. Or I do it to him, and he still loves it when he's got the Spider-Man mask on or the Iron Man and, and then he lifts up the helmet, and I'm like, oh, Cohen, I didn't see that that was you. And what does he do? He puts the mask back on. He slides it back on because he loves the praise. I can't believe all the attention I'm getting. This is fantastic. It feels good to pretend. That's my point. It feels good to pretend. If it were socially acceptable, we would still all be trick-or-treating in costumes. It's fun to do that. But we do that even in adult ways. We pretend in adult ways. For the desire of praise and for people to like us, we, we put on the humor, we put on the charm, we put on the toughness, whatever it is, whatever you put on that makes people look at you and say, I like who you are. It fuels us, that praise and that admiration, it fuels us to do good. When we're flattered, it becomes even more difficult to give up the act, doesn't it? See, if everyone ignored us and no one flattered us, we would find something that they did praise and then we would indulge in that thing. But the flattery of others fuels our sinful behavior. It fuels our hypocrisy and our pretending because it feels good. There's something in us that desires glory, that desires the praise of man, that desires to manifest our glory and for others to see it. And it is such a subtle craving. Maybe this is the hypocrite who, while fasting, goes around with a sad and distorted face, as Jesus mentions. They're crying, but they have no tears. They're whimpering, but they're really not sad and poor in heart. They're pretending. They're, fool they're, fooling. they're not fooling anyone. He probably thinks he's putting on a convincing act, but everyone knows that he is a fraud. And yet he continues to do it because it looks convincing. So you can become a, a hypocrite to the point of, where you justify your hypocrisy, where you even convince yourself that you are convincing others. The praise that you receive makes you think, but look at all the good that I'm doing. Look at how I'm helping people. Look at how much better off people are. My heart may not have pure motives, and yes, maybe I am doing this for the praise of men, but people are better, aren't they? And so we justify our hypocrisy and we keep doing it. But look at all the growth that is happening. Look at all the lives that have been impacted. You see, the Pharisees' weakness is this, and it's important to realize the Pharisees' weakness is not in their ability to do good to others. They were good to others. Their weakness was that they loved man's praise more than God's praise. That was their weakness. 
You see, Jesus isn't saying, do good like the Pharisees are doing, because they're doing great things and they're changing lives. He says, hey, their problem is not that they're failing to do good. Their problem is that they fail to do it for God. You cannot serve God while pretending. You cannot worship God genuinely while pretending to worship God. And will you live your life in such a way to please others, or will you live, you live your life to please God? That is his question. So hypocrisy will destroy our worship and forfeit what we hope to receive from God from the good that we do. And that's our second point, is looking at the reward of the hypocrites, the reward that they get. What is the reward of the hypocrites? Well, three times Jesus says the phrase, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Three times the exact phrase, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Those who look to do good with a motivation of the praise of man get the praise of man, and that's it. And Jesus would have us believe that this is a pretty pathetic reward. It is fleeting, it is empty, it is a feather of a gift, meaning it is light and powerless. Jesus would have us understand that this is such a weak gift, and if you do it for others, if you do good, then the good that you hope to get from God is forfeited for the, for the good that you get from others, the praise of man, and nothing more. It's wasted. You see, in the Greek world, uh, this word and this concept of reward was always used literally. It was always used and it always had to do with a payment for a work. It always had to do with when, when payment was done. It was never spoken metaphorically like we tend to maybe use it today. We say things like, you know, someone says, thank you so much for, for, uh, for helping me move. Uh, can, I, can, I give you, can I give you something? And we say, the reward that I get is just knowing that you are happy. <laughs> The Greeks would say, forget that, I want money. I want, I'm taking a TV or a couch or something. I'm getting payment. So the Greeks understood reward as a payment for a work done. It was never metaphorical. It was never uh, anecdotal. It was compensation, f literal compensation for work. It was rent for living in a house. It was an honorarium for a special speaking engagement. It was a receipt for payment. And the receipt, what does a receipt say? The receipt says, you paid me, you paid in full, you owe me nothing else and it's settled. Well, that's the reward. And so the reward of the hypocrites, and, and for us, if we are hypocritical in our good deeds, when we do things desiring the praise of others, God says, I'm giving you a receipt. I owe you nothing else now. You got the praise of man, and it's settled. You're, you're not, there's nothing to wait for. When we aim for the praise of man and not God, we get nothing from God because it was not God whom we were serving, but ourselves. One of my favorite anecdotes or stories uh, regarding reward comes from the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, and he tells this story. He says there was a humble gardener who presents a bunch of carrots to his king because he so esteems and loves his king. The king rewards his love with a plot of land so he can continue to bless his kingdom. A man in the king's court sees this and thinks, an acre of land for a bunch of carrots, what a deal! So the next day, the man presents the king with a magnificent horse. The wise king, discerning his heart, simply accepts the gift and says, Thank you. When the man becomes downcast, the king explains, The gardener gave me carrots, but you have given yourself a horse. You gave not for love of me, but love of yourself in the hope of a reward. 
The Bible often talks about reward and of treasure. And Jesus talks about it here when we do things, when we, when we seek a reward. And therefore we do good, seeking the praise and reward from others. We fail to get the reward we really desire. Because we were serving ourselves and not God. The reward is, and the treasure is God himself. The reward is having God as our treasure. The reward for this man who gave carrots to the king was to, to have the treasure of the king, to have the king, to bless the king, to praise the king for his sovereignty and his goodness. The reward is having God as our treasure and, and the joy of knowing and pleasing the God we love and in whom we delight. And so this is where Jesus would lead his disciples to, to an alternative way of living. He talks about what it looks like to be a hypocrite and their motive. He talks about the reward that they get and actually fail to get. And then he says, but I want you to do something different. I want you to live a different way. I want you to pursue your righteousness in a different way. As you follow me, I want you to live differently. How ought the Christian live differently? Well, the way to avoid hypocrisy is to not stop praying or giving or fasting, right? That is not the application. It is not, well, then stop doing these things because they do it wrong. In fact, we should do them. We should maintain them and continue. He says, do you see how Jesus says to each discipline, when you pray, when you fast, when you give? And so Jesus is assuming that all who desire to follow him are already doing these things and will continue to do these things. So the Christian is never weak in their expression of good deeds. They're never weak in their desire to give. Jesus assumes that they are engaging in these spiritual disciplines. He expects us to give. He expects us to pray. He expects us to worship. Let's look at giving. The way to avoid hypocrisy is to ourselves be so focused on the glory of God that our righteous giving and praying and fasting is prompted by a desire to praise Him, is a desire to respond to Him. It is a desire, as we mention every week, to worship Him, to love Him, to support the ministry of the church. And when the praise of God is what prompts us, our work will often be done in private and no one will ever know about it. And we will not think about how it will benefit ourselves. We do not think how giving this might, might benefit us or put us in a good position for leadership in the church or good standing with others or even blessing from God. We give from a prompting of God's love and grace to us. And we say, Lord, out of, a, out of love for your sovereignty, out of love for your goodness, out of love for your kindness, out of love for all that you have given to me, I, I obey your word, I give of my wealth, and I give cheerfully and generously, expecting nothing in return. We give like that. Talks about prayer. The pagan will pray thinking that God is pleased with, with eloquent and well-ordered prayers. Jesus calls them empty phrases. They think that God who sits enthroned on heaven will be about his work and he will then stop and say, wait a minute, what's that now? That's a beautifully worded prayer. Who is saying that? The construction is impe impeccable. I don't hear any, any phrase that starts with the word just. I don't see it. There's very few ums. Wow, what a prayer. Everybody hold on. Let me listen to this because this is really special. See, the Christian will pray with good theology that stresses substance over style. That is not choosing eloquent words just to sound amazing and that they spend a lot of time on this prayer, that they're a really good Christian, but that they're authentic and true. 
that their heart is aimed towards God and they are praying out of a desire of their heart. Have you ever heard a child pray? Have you ever rebuked a child for sounding foolish in their prayers? I hope not. And even times, there are times when I hear my children pray, it'll bring me to tears because of how stupid it is. (laughs) How foolish it is and yet how beautiful it is at the same time. And how they are casting their heart in the best way that they are able to. They are pointing their desires towards God. They're talking to God in childish ways, and it is beautiful. This is what God desires from us. He desires that our hearts would be aimed towards Him in our prayer, and our joy would be on Him. And Jesus did not forbid public prayer, of course. If He forbade public prayer, then his disciples must have misunderstood him entirely because we are encouraged in the New Testament. We see this practice in the New Testament church of prayer, of gathering together and praying together and praying publicly and openly and courageously, praying often together, sharing our sins and praying for God's forgiveness. But it is here there's a good test of our motives. The person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in the human praise or reputation. You see, the person who spends more time praying in public than in private tells us something, that we care about the praise of man more than God's approval. And so Jesus says, go into your room, shut the door, pray to God. Just think of that. Just think of that. Jesus is saying, go in your room, lock the door, go in your closet, go in a quiet place and just pray to God, be with God. No one hears you, no one sees you. Now, how will you act? What will you say? What will you say in the quiet place? I imagine you'll sound something like a child crying out to God and talking to Him with words that are not well organized but are meaningful and important to you. See, this is the practice of a person who truly desires to commune with God and seek Him with their whole heart. In secret, you meet the Lord in prayer. And the Father who sees in secret will reward His disciples who pray in secret. God, why did you answer my prayer in such a way? I felt like it was all over the place. It wasn't well thought out. And He would say, because you met me in secret, because you pursued my heart, because you communed with me, because you pursued me, because you asked me, and it was given to you. Jesus offers a great pattern of prayer in the Lord's Prayer, which is common. Churches for for ages have have recited this prayer together publicly. Something so helpful that actually next week we're going to be uh, just teaching on this section alone. On the Lord's Prayer. Go into your room, shut the door, pray to God. But what what about fasting? I'll just say a bit on fasting if you've never fasted. Um, It's one of the three um, principal acts of piety in the early church and in early Judaism. Prayer and giving are the other two. And so the practice that should be exercised today, and and, and yet it's often overlooked, is is fasting, is the practice and discipline of fasting. The purpose was, as an act of worship, that we would abstain from food for a period of time to to, not to receive something from God. It wasn't something superstitious that if we're going to... Why are you fasting? Well, because I'm going to give up something so that God will see that good work and maybe give me something back. It's not that at all. But we fast because of something we, that God has done in our heart. We, it's always a response. Fasting is meant to serve as a response to God. It can serve as a response to repentance, where we mourn our sin and express our 
hope in the gospel, where we spend a period of time truly entering into a time of, of mourning of our sin and repenting of our sin and pleading with God in the gospel. It could serve as a moment where we earnestly seek God, not in a superstitious way of getting something from God, where we, but where we seek Him in a genuine desire to, to abide in Him and depend on Him, where we, we express to Him, Lord, I depend on You. I am not independent. I am not on my own. I need You. And so we spend time doing that. It can serve as a way of deep yearning and longing for God. And every time we feel the pains of hunger, we are reminded of our hunger and thirst for God. And so fast. Spend time fasting. I encourage you to do that. But don't do it like the hypocrite. I have fasted at times, and, it, and, and, and it's so easy to be like the hypocrite in our fasting. Hey, do you want to go out for lunch tomorrow? No, I'm fasting for the Lord. I cannot, brother. Or we go and we're just like, we're droopy and we don't take a bath and we don't do our hair. And we're like, what's going on? Oh, I'm, I'm in a season of fasting. Oh, whoa. <laughs> okay, you must be really spiritual. You ever, you ever hear someone who's fasting? Automatically what you think is, well, that person's got their life in order. They are really spiritual. I'm not as spiritual as them. Maybe I should fast. That's your reward. That's all you get. But Jesus actually says, no, like, put on makeup, like, ladies, like, put on perfume, put on your good jeans. I mean, actually, like, go out and commune with others and put on, put on joy on your face and be glad. Be glad as you pursue God in fasting. And uh, do you see the difference between the Christian and, and the hypocrite here? The secret to righteousness is righteousness that is expressed in secret that does not seek to praise the praise of man, but the reward of God who knows our secret disciplines. Here's one of my favorite metaphors and an explanation to the secret of God's reward. One of my favorite movies is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the 1970s version, not the creepy one with Johnny Depp. My favorite scene is towards the end of this movie, in the final scene where all the children have failed, right? All these children who got the golden ticket are brought to the factory, promised a lifetime supply of chocolate for the one who passes all the tests and remains at the end, right? So one child is going to get a lifetime supply of chocolate. And all the children fail. They have failed the test, and yet one remains, and that's Charlie. The person who passes the test wins a lifetime supply of chocolate. But Charlie finds out that he has lost two. And a profound scene unfolds. I want to just, I'm going to do a movie clip in church, okay? So don't go tell him Presbytery that I showed a movie clip. Just like, enjoy just a couple minutes. Mr. Wonka? I am extraordinarily busy, sir. I just wanted to ask about the chocolate. The lifetime supply of chocolate for Charlie. When does he get it? He doesn't. Why not? Because he broke the rules. What rules? We didn't see any rules, did we, Charlie? Wrong, sir. Wrong. Under Section 37B of the contract signed by him, it states quite clearly that all offers shall become null and void if, and you can read it for yourself in this photostatic copy, I, the undersigned, shall forfeit all rights, privileges, and licenses herein and herein contained, etc., etc., fax mentis incendium gloria calpum, etc., etc., memo bis punitor delicatum. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You stole fizzy lifting drinks. You bumped into the ceiling, which now has to be washed and sterilized, so you get nothing. 
You lose. Good day, sir. You're a crook. You're a cheat and a swindler. That's what you are. How can you do a thing like this? Build up a little boy's hopes and then smash all his dreams to pieces. You're an inhuman monster. I said good day. Come on, Charlie. Let's get out of here. I'll get even with him if it's the last thing I ever do. Slugworth wants a gobstopper, he'll get one. Mr. Wonka? So shines a good deed in a weary world. Charlie! My boy. You won! You did it! You did it! Getting a little weepy just watching that. What's going on here? What's going on in this clip? Well, Mr. Wonka, played by the great late Gene Wilder, um, and Grandpa Joe and Charlie, he's reading the contract out loud and he's very angry, right? He's very passionate and the best part of the movie, and actually I think the whole entire point of the whole movie, you don't even understand because it's in Latin. Those parts, you see that he read two words from the contract that were in Latin where he says, you get nothing, and here's why you get nothing, and he read in Latin, fax mentis insidium gloria and memo bis punitor delicatum. What is he saying? What does that even mean? Well, it translated this, the torch of glory kindles the mind, and I understand the crime is punishment twice. Okay. He says, you lose twice. He's saying the glory... He says, the, the torch of glory kindles the mind. He is saying, when you seek your glory, when you seek your own reward, you lose twice. Because you re lose the reward itself that you sought, and you lose everything else. See, this whole thing, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, this whole thing was a test. It was to test who was seeking their own glory and who wasn't. Who could truly do a good deed, and as Charlie comes and he, he lays the everlasting gobstopper on the desk, Mr. Wonka grabs it and says what? He says, so shines a good deed in a weary world. You see, there's this man named Mr. Slugsworth that promised to make Charlie rich if he brought him that candy. And Charlie chooses to give it up, to give up his glory, to give up his right to wealth and fame and fortune for the sake of doing the right thing. And that was the whole test, and Mr. Wonka gets it, and he turns around, and with great joy and enthusiasm, he reveals that Charlie won that he passed the test. Charlie wins. My friends, while the world is, is clamoring for fame and everything in it pushes us to pursue our glory, our reward, our reputation, it only produces weariness and it leads to the destruction of our body and soul. And what is, what is the secret to breaking this curse? What is the secret to the, the plight of the hypocrite. The secret is to anchoring our, our hope and our dreams and our identity and our very lives in the one who did not seek his own glory, but instead emptying himself of his own glory 
to the point of death for us. You see, Charlie here is in a way, he's the Christ figure. He is the one who did not seek his own glory, but he laid down his own glory. He emptied himself of his right and claim to be, to be wealthy. Charlie, as you know, was, was poor. He went to work for his family. And this everlasting gobstopper was a, a pathway out of poverty for him and his whole family and his children and grandchildren. And yet he gives it up to do the right thing. He is the Christ figure who gave it all up, who gave up his glory. Look at Philippians chapter 2 who said, that says it so well. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. To summarize this about Jesus, Jesus, who was worthy of all the applause, applause of mankind, was not looking for any applause, and so God the Father gave him the reward of eternal applause. Jesus died on the cross, and what did people say? People said, wow, he, he failed. He failed the test. He's not our Savior, but he is. He failed the test of doing, living his life for the pleasure of man, but he passed the test in living his life for the praise of God. If you want to know the good news, you, you, the good news in avoiding hypocrisy, you've got to know the bad news first that all, of, all those who pursue their own glory lose twice. You lose heaven. The hypocrite loses heaven. The hypocrite does not get into heaven. The hypocrite does not get the eternal reward of God. And you lose the earthly gift as well because eventually everything withers. Everything fades away. You come to nothing. You become spiritually and eventually physically bankrupt. Are you a hypocrite? Are you pretending to know and worship God and yet you just really, you're just really a good actor. You need rescue. You must realize that we are Augustus, Augustus Gloop. <laughs> Augustus Gloop, right? You know, the, the obese glutton who had an insatiable appetite for sin that he gets sucked up into the chocolate river. You know, we, we must realize that we are Violet, Violet, the self-conceited and snobby one that turns into the thing she loves the most, the blueberry. We are Veruca, the selfish and rotten, no regard for the well-being of others. She is eventually sent into the garbage chute in the incinerator. We are Mike TV, absorbed in watching TV, very smart, too smart for our own good. We know better than everyone. No one can ever speak into our life. And then there's Charlie, the Christ figure who gets it all. He gets the chocolate. He gets the company. He gets the joy and the adventure of the reward. He is our Christ. Christ is he is the one who is glorious. He is the one who gave up his glory for us. And God's agenda for us is that we would behold the glory of Jesus. He is the most glorious. And the most glorious moment for Jesus was not in his resurrection or his ascension. His most glorious moment was when he was crucified on the cross, where he passed the test for us, where he was not motivated by the praise of man, where he received the curses of man in order to praise God. And the result is that we have his reward 
We behold his glory by living our lives and all that we do in light of all that Jesus has done for us. He has succeeded in all that we have failed to do. Do you need to repent of being a hypocrite? You're a hypocrite if you try to impress God with your good works. If you do good for the praise of others, you're serving only yourself, proving that you're still your own savior. It is done for your glory, which is pretty much the definition of sin, trying to be your own savior. Our Christian lives begin and continue and end in the same way. When we believe that Christ crucified for us, that he succeeded where we fail, that he died our death, and by faith and repenting of our sins and trusting in him, we are counted right before God solely because of Jesus' perfect work for us. Not our record, not our character. Saturday nights are tough nights for me. I usually don't sleep very well. I usually have bad dreams. And last night I had a dream. This isn't like a, a, like, a, like a Bible prophetic dream. This is just like a dream I had. I had a dream that I preached the same sermon I, last, I preached last week. And I, and I didn't realize it until I got to the very end of the sermon. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure this is something new for you all today. But there's something interesting about that because it can feel like that. The Sermon on the Mount is somewhat felt like that, that we just keep preaching the same sermon every week, where Jesus presents a moral ethic, where he presents a principle that we fail to live out, and we say, well, what do we do? This is so overwhelming. And it is in that way. It is kind of the same sermon, the same sermon that Jesus is preaching over and over and over and over again. He says, you're a hypocrite. You lust. You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. You're a cheat. You're a swindle. All the things that Mr. Wonka is accused of, he is the one that is righteous and good and has a plan. And we are the ones guilty. And yet, as he bears the weight of the law on us, he says, you've fallen short of what God has called you to do. And then it's just quiet. And the only thing there standing that's different is Jesus. And the crowds are meant to look at Jesus. And so, in a sense, this is the same sermon. The same sermon that we have failed to live the lives that God has called us to live. But Jesus has succeeded and our hope is in Him, our trust is in Him. So we live instead as, as people trying to impress God. We live as people not trying to prove ourselves to God. We need, live now free to trust in God, recognizing that we are desperate, desperately in need of His grace. And the Spirit of God who works in our hearts gives us new affections, new desires, new motives, and new joys that lead to new behaviors that are truly pleasing to God in all that we do. Trust in Jesus. Leave a life of hypocrisy. Trust in Him. And your God who sees you in secret will reward you. Let's pray.